I hope you have your Bibles with you this morning, and if you do, that you will turn in them to Matthew 13. That's on page 818 of the Bibles that are provided for you in the chairs, if one of those would serve you to use this morning, and in fact, if it would serve you uh, as well after this morning. You want to take it home, please do. You want to give it to somebody, please do. Matthew 13, in the passage that Holly just read for us. I think some of you know this about me already, but I spent a little bit of time on a farm when I was in senior high school. It was actually a dairy farm, and my knowledge and appreciation for what goes into farming increased while I was there. Certainly not as much as it should have. After all, I was a 17-year-old kid, 18-year-old kid, so I wasn't paying as close attention to those things as I could have been. But Truth be told, my appreciation for it did increase, and as I've gotten older, I think back to those days and months that I spent some time on a farm, and my appreciation increases as I get older. In fact, I've thought back to some of the things that I've observed, I did observe on that farm, and when I then observe things about farming now, whether something on TV perhaps, or some news report or whatever, my appreciation is uh, more clear. My understanding of it is at least a little clearer because of that. In fact, uh, some of you know Kate and I were in Michigan a couple of weeks ago for her parents' um, retirement celebration, and I actually got to sit down with one of Kate's uncles and chat for a little bit. He's been a farmer in Ohio for several years. I don't know how many exactly, but a long time since, since Kate was little. And uh, his farm consists mostly of soybeans and sweet corn. We talked about that a little bit, and talked about how they've had more rain than they actually want this year, and talked about various methods of fertilization and the things going on in the farming community, and how he's talked to other farmers about what they're going through, as well as his own future plans for retirement and what to do with his land. And so since my time on the farm as a teenager, I've come to understand that at least a little bit of a working knowledge of what goes into farming can actually be pretty helpful for Bible study. There are several farming analogies in the scriptures, including in our passage for today. This parable that Holly read for us just a moment ago is included in all three of the synoptic gospels. And if you don't know what synoptic means, what we're talking about are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those are the synoptics. John is one of the Gospels, but it is not part of the synoptics. So all three of the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, include this parable. And this parable is perhaps at the top of some Christians' lists as far as which parable they think of immediately when they think of parables. This is actually one of only two times that Jesus then also interprets the parable for his listeners and for us as later readers explicitly. The the parable that follows is actually the other one, so we'll we'll go through a similar uh, process with that one. We talked about this last time, but as Jesus first told this parable, some people likely had no idea what Jesus was on about. But it's also likely that some of Jesus' hearers picked up on some of it rather quickly. There are some thematic similarities in this parable to Old Testament prophecy. 
For example, in the Old Testament, there are recurring themes regarding the people of God's lack of fruit. There are images in the Old Testament of the Word of God being like a seed that is sown. There are even references in the Old Testament to birds as at times being a sort of ominous symbol of nefarious goings-on. All, all four of those images are in this passage, in this parable. And so some of these would have actually been normal images that some of the Jews that were listening could and should and would, even in some cases, have picked up on. But still, upon first hearing it, it's possible that for several it seemed quite odd. And in fact, it can seem quite odd to some of us, as we talked about last time, to hear this parable on its own without any explanation. Here's this farmer throwing seeds around, seemingly haphazardly, without any regard, it seems, for where it's landing. And without, you'll notice, any preparation for the soil that it's being sown on. But actually, in ancient Israel, this was a very common method for sowing seeds. The seeds would have just been simply tossed out by hand, and then the ground would be plowed so that during that tilling process, the seeds would go down into the ground and take root from there. So sowing like that without doing the tilling first was not at all uncommon. In fact, this reminded me of when we first bought our house in 2012, and our backyard was not a backyard, it was just dirt at the house that we bought, and we sowed some seeds, I think even by hand now that I'm thinking about it, and did some tilling. Paul was there, he helped us. Did some tilling afterwards, thinking in in similar ways that we would get it down deep. When in reality, what wound up happening was not only did that seed, uh, excuse me, grass seed get planted, but all those lovely goat head plants also got sent deep down into the soil so that quite literally we spent, I think it was an entire day, maybe more than one day, on our hands and knees crawling around our backyard pulling up all the goat head blossoms that were taking place. So you plant the seed, then you till the ground, and the seed begins to bloom. So some of this was actually quite realistic for the Jewish people uh, to sort of recognize what would have happened in farming in their day. But... The harvest that Jesus describes at the end was quite unrealistic, or perhaps we could say uncommon. And that part might have been a bit confusing to them. Because remember, the context in which Jesus spoke these words was an arid or dry climate in which farming was more of a struggle than in places like Ohio, where Uncle Gary lives, or Pennsylvania, where I'm from. The normal yield at that time and in that place, according to commentator Doug O'Donnell, who you've heard me mention before. By the way, if you hear me say anything you think is pretty smart, Doug probably helped me with that. Doug's great. The normal yield for them would have been more like seven to eight times the amount of seeds that they planted. And so when Jesus spoke of a harvest 30 times, that's not unheard of, but it would have been an excellent one. Then he speaks of 60 times. That would have been fantastic. Then he even says 100 times. That would have been utterly staggering for a harvest in their time and place. So I think that should clue us in to the fact that Jesus is talking about something rather extraordinary here. And the question is then, what is it that Jesus is talking about? I think we'll see by the time we get to the end. 
And so here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to read this parable and its interpretation again, and then try to frame this parable and its interpretation in terms of two subjects, each of which having two categories. Because I believe at the heart of the intent of Jesus' parable are these two things, the soil and the fruit. The soil, which is central to the interpretation of the parable, and the fruit, which is key to understanding its interpretation. You read this passage, and it might seem at first that there are actually four categories of soil. And in a way there are, but I think we'll see that we really have just two categories. Bad soil and good soil. Let's read the parable again. Starting in the middle of verse 3, or towards the end, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. And then down in verse 18, Jesus says, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil... This is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. So Jesus does list four kinds of soil, but I'm arguing that the first three fall into one category, and then the final soil in its own. The first three categories are these. First, the pathway. You see that in verse 4 and his explanation in verse uh, 19. Soil that's more of a pathway than a field, a place where people are walking, where the ground is hardened and sort of tamped down by feet walking along the way, from which the birds then snatch up those seeds easily and eat and destroy them. The second kind of soil here is this rocky and shallow soil. Verse 5 says it did not have much soil, from which the seeds do spring up, but since there's no depth, the sun comes and it's not guarded from it, undergoes this trial, so to speak, and then it dies. The third being seed that falls along these neighboring thorny plants that choke the life out of them, the result of which is the same. It's ultimately unfruitful. Now, what do each of these three categories have in common? Verse 4, the pathway seed is eaten and destroyed. Verse 6, the seed is withered and dies. Verse 22, 
skipping to his explanation there, it proves unfruitful. In other words, each of these first three soils is ultimately bad. None of them, those three, wind up being soils that are conducive to roots. But the final soil is receptive to the seed. It's good soil. It's healthy. Look at verse 8 again. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain. Then verse 23 in Jesus' explanation, as for what was sown in good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and then yields a, a great harvest. The seed sown into good soil produced grain and bears fruit. And so this is why I think there are just two categories of soil here, bad and good. The first three do not result in lasting roots and therefore do not produce fruit. They do not last in the end and therefore they're all part of that same category, bad soil. But the final soil does result in roots, does produce fruit, and does last in the end. And there is good instead of bad soil. And so that is this first issue, this first subject in this parable. Two soil options, bad or good. Now, clearly, there is some nuance with regard to the nature of these first three soils. You saw them already. You can make the argument, and some do, that while the first soil is clearly bad, there's nothing going on there, the two that follow might have signs of real spiritual life. If you look again at verse 4, the seeds don't even start to take root anywhere. They're just devoured. Whereas in verse 5, the seed sprang up. Something happened. Plant life is beginning. There's at least a little bud there. And similarly, in verse 7, there's something there for the thorns to choke out. The seed didn't just get eaten up and never sprout at all like it did in the first category. And so some would argue that these two middle soils also have, have signs of life in them and are, in fact, representative of those who did have spiritual life take place in their heart. Some would also argue that even that first soil in verse 4 and in verse 19 as, as, as well also indicates spiritual life because of the phrase that the seed was sown in his heart. But I think that interpretation requires some stretching of the text and misses Jesus' point. But it is a view held by some, a view that I don't agree with and that I think misses the point of the passage and misses the context of what's going on here. Actually, though, the bigger question that more people struggle with has not necessarily to do with that first seed. Most people, as far as I understand, agree that that first seed represents no spiritual life going on, but there are questions about those middle two seeds. Do those represent spiritual life that did happen, people who did trust Christ and just didn't grow might it be the case that they had spiritual life and just the fourth one is the best example that we should all be shooting for well i don't think so and here's why first of all i don't think that interpretation fits with the immediate context of this passage 
of chapter 13 in particular. Matthew is going to record seven parables in this third discourse of Jesus. Not all of them have all the same characteristics or even the same immediate message or the same moral, you might say, but they are certainly connected. Matthew grouped them intentionally and Jesus gave them intentionally. Let me see if you follow me. Parables 2 and 7 have to do with the reality that God will judge between those who are his and those who reject him. And so we're looking at parable one this morning. I'm talking about the one that follows, the parable of the weeds, and then if you skip down a little farther, the final parable there of the net. Parables three and four have to do with the kingdom of heaven spreading powerfully from small beginnings. Then parables five and six have to do with the kingdom of heaven's great value. Parable one is a little different. It actually, of all of these parables, is the only one in this passage that doesn't start with the phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like. You can see that in uh, verse 24, verse 21, excuse me, 31, verse, I should have written these down, 44, and 45, and 47. The kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like, except this first one doesn't start with that. And so it doesn't appear to be part of one of these pairs. There's seven parables. Three of them have similarities that I think pair them well, such as the parables of the mustard seed and the yeast, or the parables of the treasure and the pearl, or the parables of the wheat and the fish. So here's what I'm getting at. I think this first parable is a kind of an introductory parable that introduces this third discourse from which then the other three parables stem. I know I'm getting a little technical here, a little heavy on the exegetical content here. Think of it this way. An introductory parable that describes these first two responses, then bookend parable one that describes the result of however you respond, then these parables about the power of the kingdom, and then these parables about the value of the kingdom, and then bookend parable two, the results of the responses, very similar to bookend one. And I think you can boil down these messages of these parables something like this. In parable one, there are two kinds of people in relation to the call of the kingdom of Jesus. Parable two, your life depends on how you respond. Parables three and four, the kingdom is powerfully spreading. Parables 5 and 6, you should respond to the value of this kingdom. It's infinitely valuable. And then parable 7, sort of similar to the second one, how will you respond? So it seems that in this context, this immediate context, Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God is something that you want to be a part of and that you've got to decide whether or not you're on board. And in fact, how you decide, how you respond, will affect your eternity. You see what I'm saying here? Now, I think that affects the way that we read all these parables individually and together, but I think it also makes my case that the soils in our parable for today aren't all describing different kinds of Christians. Rather, they're describing two different kinds of responses. 
the immediate context of this whole third discourse of Jesus in chapter 13 seems to be a context in which Jesus is calling for people to embrace him and his kingdom. And if that's what he's ultimately getting at, why would he be describing the nuances of varied kinds of truly Christian responses in these four soils? I think it makes far better sense to understand it as a description of the two kinds of responses to the message and call of the kingdom and then the results that come from those responses. And so that's the first reason, the immediate context. The second reason I think that we're looking at two different kinds of soils is the broader context. If after looking at all of these parables in chapter 13, you still think that this parable is describing four different kinds of Christians, I'd also point you backward just a little bit farther to chapters 11 and 12 as evidence that the context there presents a connected and cohesive message into which this first parable of the sower in chapter 13 fits. Just glance your eyes back if you'd like at chapters 11 and 12. We're not going to read all of this, obviously, but you can perhaps look at it and remember things that we've talked about in this section of scripture already. Remember at the beginning of chapter 11 when John the Baptist was questioning Jesus's methods and what in the world was going on with the arrival of the kingdom? Remember Jesus said in that narrative that those who did not get offended by him were blessed? Remember how Jesus then criticized those who reject him? He speaks in the uh, verses 16 and following of this generation of people who reject him, saying that they're like spoiled children. Remember how in Matthew eleven twenty-eight and following, he called for the heavily burdened to come to him for rest instead of continuing on in their weariness and sin. You remember how in chapter 12 these debates took place between Jesus and the Pharisees? The Sabbath debate in particular. The legalism of these Pharisees. Their unwillingness to embrace Him as the Messiah even though it was being revealed. And remember how in verse 33 of chapter 12 Jesus said that the life of a tree is evidenced by fruit. You see, it seems like the context of our parable in Matthew 13 is very much related to the whole context of chapters 11 and 12. It seems like it's very much continuing the point that Jesus is making that there are ultimately two options. Embrace Jesus or reject Jesus. So immediate context, broader context, and then parabolic context. Here's what I mean. There's a recurring pattern in many other parables where the final example in the parable that lists certain examples is the one that's intended to stand out as different from the rest. Now, not every parable is framed this way, but it is a common thing. Think of the parable of the Good Samaritan, where the first two men pass by the beaten man. They don't help him, but then the final man, the Samaritan, does help him, and Jesus is making a point about neighborly love. A parable of the talents is another, where the first two servants do well, but the final servant is wicked and doesn't do well, and Jesus is making a point about the condemnation of those who don't serve him like the first two did. Those are just two examples, but there are others, where in a parable, the final example is intended to stand out as different than the previous ones, with the purpose of then highlighting either the benefits or the problems 
associated with that final example. And then another piece of context that I just have to point out is that I think it makes most sense in a farming context. In other words, it's just more common sense. Crop farming ultimately comes down to fruit. And if there's fruit, that means the seed took and it's alive and you've succeeded. And if there's no fruit, it didn't work out. And so I'm saying all this in part to say that I think it's overanalyzing the parable to argue that technically there was life in those either all three of those first three examples or maybe the middle two until they died. And therefore those represent believers who fell away from the faith or those who weren't discipled well enough and therefore they just sort of stumbled their way into heaven on free grace alone without any real fruit. But I think if you interpret it plainly, Just let it say what it says in its context, immediate, broader, parabolic, and farming even context. We'll see clearly what it says. It makes most sense, I think, to understand that Jesus is describing three kinds of bad soil, representing three examples of those who hear the word, but do not believe. Never become Christians. And then, of course, the good soil representing those who do receive the word and believe. So these are the two soil options. The first is good soil from which fruit ultimately comes. The second is bad soil from which no fruit will ultimately come. And just as Jesus had already been saying and demonstrating in his earthly ministry up to this point, just in Matthew's gospel alone, there are two options. Embrace him or reject him. And I I think this has been made clear, but I'm just going to say it to make it abundantly clear. Good soil, in this farming analogy, represents hearts that by faith receive the seed of the Word of God planted by the sower who is ultimately God Himself. And of course, God uses those who speak the Word on His behalf, but it's ultimately Him. The fruit then in the analogy represents the spiritual fruits in the believer's lives that will come. The three bad soils representing those who for various reasons hear the word and ultimately prove that they never truly received it, proving that by the lack of fruit. And that's the second issue, the second subject in this passage. The first being two soil options, bad or good. The second being two fruit options, living or lacking. Just like there are two soil options, there are two fruit options. It's interesting, I think, that the fruit in this parable, or lack thereof, is connected by Jesus to some specific examples of how this might happen. Jesus explains what the bad soil's conditions were like that led to a lack of fruit, or at least contributed to that being the case. The seeds that were thrown along the path, never took root at all, and they're just lying there, ready for the birds to eat them. And here in the, in the uh, explanation from the Lord in verses 18 through 23, he equates the birds to the evil one. That's the devil. That's Satan. And he's saying, Jesus is saying, that those who have the seed of God's word sown in their heart, but if I could put it this way, just sort of let it bounce off their hard hearts, as it were, like that hardened pathway, they are fair game for the evil one 
to claim as his own. And in case you're wondering about that little phrase that causes some people questions, I think that phrase, sown in his heart, which is in uh, verse, three, uh, verse 4. No, excuse me. <laughs> verse, tw- verse 19. Sorry, I forgot to write that one down there in my notes. I think that phrase, sown in his heart, here means that they heard it. It was sown into their heart. They heard it. They were confronted by it in their heart, but they did not respond by embracing it with their hearts. And so the fruit was lacking. The next one are these seeds sown in rocky ground. They can't get their roots down deep because of the nature of that soil. The soil is shallow, the text says. It's rocky. And then he says that when these seeds are exposed to the pressures of the elements... The plant doesn't have substantial roots, and it dies. That's a really interesting one. In the parable itself, the phrase in verse 6 is, the sun rose and they were scorched. That's the imagery there of a seed that didn't get deep enough. The sun comes up, it scorches the seed. It doesn't have the ability to take root and bring fruit. But in the explanation in verses 20 and 21, he describes those who do hear the word, they initially seem to respond with joy, but... Tribulation or persecution arises. What Jesus is saying here illustrates what happens when someone initially receives God's word with delight, maybe even genuine excitement, but then things get hard. That person then comes face to face with the reality that walking with Jesus does not come without troubles. You will have trouble, in fact, Jesus said to his disciples. And many believers all throughout church history, these last 2,000 some years, have experienced trouble like tribulation and persecution on account of the word. Where in order to be faithful to the gospel, in order to be faithful to Jesus, in order to be faithful to the message of God's word, you are going to face persecution and tribulation directly related to that word and when they're faced with that reality they fall away because there was no real root there and therefore the fruit was lacking the third example of seeds sown among thorns also seem to receive the word to an extent but then jesus describes two things that choke the life out of their fruit the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches that's right there in verse 22 how interesting the word translated if you have the word cares in verse 22 like i do is the greek word for anxiety for worry the word translated riches here is the greek word for riches so that one's pretty simple Jesus identifies here anxiety and worry and then money or greed as thorns, metaphorical, that get in the way of the seed of God's word from truly implanting in the heart of those who ultimately never truly convert. 
And friends, I think here is a sobering reminder of the battle that rages between spiritual light and darkness. There is a war going on in people, both in their own hearts and against the wiles of the devil, both of which offer a temptation, this is important, to distrust what God has said in his word. You see, Jesus is making a point here about those who reject him being caught up and eventually choked out by greed and worry. But there's a point here to be made for those of us who have embraced him too. These, these words of the people who are choked out are not talking, I don't believe, about actual Christians, but I do think there's a point here to notice at least that worry and greed are powerful tools in the hands of our flesh and in the hands of the evil one to draw people away from Jesus. Because worry says, how will this go wrong? Or how can I prevent things from going wrong? How can I try to control the things in my life to avoid what I'm afraid of? Instead of, how will God take care of me and glorify himself through whatever comes to me from his hand? And similarly, greed says, I want for myself increased wealth and stuff more than I want what Jesus wants for me. One of my kids, and I will not tell you who, just yesterday, we had a a really funny moment together, his heart came out a little bit and he said to me dad i want more stuff and i won't tell you who it was because i refuse to embarrass specific children in the pulpit but that is a true reality in so many of our hearts i want for myself increased wealth and stuff more than i want what jesus wants for me really interesting that both of the commentators that i focused time reading this past week, guys, uh, Doug O'Donnell, who I've mentioned before, and then a guy named Craig Blomberg, who's got a really helpful book on preaching the parables. Both of them mentioned statistics that they had researched regarding the large percentage of professing American Christians who either don't give any money to gospel ministry at all or who only give around 3% or less. Now, over the years of being a part of Redeemer Bible Church, I have seen Redeemer Bible Church members give generously and faithfully. So in no way am I intimating anything about our local church or any of you as individuals. But if it's true of the church in the United States in general, what this research yielded, that is an indicator of greed being a powerful deterrent to gospel advance, both in individuals and in local churches. But so is worry, anxiety, or cares. Because fears and potentialities of this broken world can overshadow in our minds the truth about who Jesus is and what He has done to deal with our sins for us. We're focused on what might go wrong today or what I have to try to avoid in this difficult situation later. We can become blinded from remembering what God has already done for us that is good and how He promises to continue doing good for us in whatever it is that He brings into our lives, then leading us to trust Him. 
And so Jesus describes these three examples of people whose soil is bad, resulting in a lack of fruit. But then Jesus also explains the situation where the fruit comes alive with this fourth example of soil. And it's simply described by Jesus as those who hear the word and understand it and produce fruit or bear fruit because we know that it's the Lord ultimately who produces that fruit. And that's why I'm saying here that the second subject or the second issue in this parable is fruit. The first one is soil. The second is fruit. Good soil or bad soil, lacking soil or living soil. That which proves whether or not the soil was good, receptive to the seed, receptive to God's Word, is the fruit. And what Jesus is doing as He begins this third discourse is continuing to make the point that He has already been making that His kingdom is only for those who embrace Him. It's not for everyone. Certainly all are welcome. But only those who embrace Him may come. And he is going to describe the kingdom in terms of powerfully spreading from small beginnings in a parable in just a few sections here. And then of the kingdom being greatly desirable, comparing it even to the earthly treasures that we value. But before that, Jesus is making clear that kingdom entrance requires allegiance to him. And he states again, as he already has, that there will be some who embrace him and some who reject him. And what ultimately will prove those who have done what is the fruit based on the condition of the soil. The soil being the heart, the fruit being the works that flow out from a life transformed by Jesus. And so there you have it, friends. The sower is God. The seed is God's word. The soil is a person's heart. But what do we do with the parable of the sower and the seeds and the soils today? Well, I want to end with two calls to self-analysis and to sow gospel seeds. The first is a sobering call to self-analysis. On the one hand, self-analysis regarding the condition of your metaphorical soil. Is your soil, in other words, your heart, Receptive to the seed of God's Word, to the message of the Gospel that God in His love has sent His Son to redeem sinners like you and me if we simply trust in Him? Is your soil receptive to that message? Or does it reject it? I think it's likely that the majority, at least, of those gathered in this room on this day wouldn't be here if they were the first soil from which no remote sign of life ever presents itself, the message of God's Word just bounce off that hardened ground. But I would be naive if I thought that it was not possible that there could be some listening, whether in this room or on the stream or at a recording at a later time, who at one time responded to the seed of God's Word with excitement and a kind of belief, possibly at the prospect of a life of meaning and value and purpose or at the thought of living forever in heaven i mean who wouldn't want to do that but when following jesus gets tough you're not so sure this is what you signed up for and you may even want out it's also possible that some of us might identify with the rich young man in a different 
section of Scripture who had a conversation with Jesus about wanting to follow him and even professing to believe. But when Jesus called that young man to give up everything he had in order to follow him, that young man chose to not follow Jesus rather than give up his stuff. So it's possible that for one of us in this room or listening on a later time is called by the Lord to let go of some stuff, some earthly riches, money or otherwise, for the sake of some kind of ministry, you'd rather not use it for the kingdom of God. And so it's a sobering self-analysis. What is true about the condition of your heart as it relates to the seed of the message of the Word of God, of the good news of the kingdom of Jesus being sown, as it were, in your direction? In other words, can I put it this way, have you truly embraced the message of Christ? Or is there no fruit? So on the one hand, what's your soil like? On the other hand, what's your fruit like? Friends, all throughout the New Testament, there are calls to examine fruit. A call to examine fruit is not, on its own, legalistic. It's biblical. The Bible mentions what spiritual fruit looks like. It corrects against presuming that the grace of God will just give you a free pass when there's never been any kind of real transformation, when there's never been any kind of real fruit coming from you. And I believe this is very much a part of Jesus' purpose in telling this parable, an indication that there will be those who appear from the outside to be kingdom residents, but who have never truly been miraculously and spiritually transformed through faith. So that's the first call to self-analysis. The second call is to sow gospel seeds. In our gospel project curriculum that we use with the teens, on the first and third Wednesday nights of the month, there is a section at the end of the curriculum for application and discussion, and it's called Head, Heart, and Hands. In other words, how does this passage that we've talked about together affect the way I think doctrinally? How does it affect my affections, my convictions? And how does it affect or motivate my actions? And this final call to sow gospel seed is one of those hands kinds of calls. In other words, how does the parable of the sower motivate our actions as those who truly are Christians? Certainly can't see into the hearts of, of any of us here, but I assume that the vast majority at least are truly seeking to follow Jesus and are indeed members of his kingdom. And so how does it motivate our actions? Well, I think the parable of the sower seeds and soils tells us that the sowing of gospel seeds, the act of spreading the word of God, is an act of trust in the Lord as he is the ultimate sower and the ultimate one who brings the harvest. And here's why I think this is important for us this morning. Friends, it has been exciting to see our church recently being given multiple privileged opportunities to sow gospel seeds and even to water to continue that metaphor even to harvest gospel fruit on a few occasions recently in fact just the other day i believe it was in our elders meeting 
Brian was telling Paul and me about how to re- at a recent fellowship group gathering, there were several examples of opportunities that were being shared in the group of having been able to share the gospel with someone. Praise God for that. And for all of us who are seeking to pursue sowing gospel seeds, let this parable be a reminder that we are simply used of God for the sowing of the seeds faithfully, and some will fall on good soil. Sadly, not all will. That's just reality. In fact, many of the soils will ultimately reject our gospel seed sowing, but there will be some who believe. And so friends, just keep sowing gospel seeds. Be used of the Lord to spread the message of the good news of the kingdom of God's arrival in Jesus to everyone who will listen. It's not on you whether or not they are good soil. It's not up to you whether your words will fall on thorny or rocky ground or even on a pathway. What's on us as disciples is being used of Him to sow the seeds. The parable here proclaims the truth that those who are truly followers of Jesus will bear fruit that flows from the heart. Hearts that are receptive to the Word. And Jesus says, in fact, they will not just bear fruit. They will bear abundant fruit. A bumper crop of 30, 60, and 100 times the seeds that are sown. And I mentioned this at the beginning that Jesus' mention of 30, 60, and 100 times harvest was an indication that Jesus was talking about something extraordinary. And here's where I want to end. The sowing of the seeds of the Word of God into hearts that may be compared to good and receptive soil will result in a miraculous spread of the good news of the kingdom of God. That's a promise. And so I think we can read this parable sometimes as Christians get a little down. On the one hand, in the self-analysis part, oh boy, I wonder if I'm one of the bad soils, or oh no, I'm not sure what the fruit is like in my life. And to be sure, those are questions that we must wrestle with and see whether or not the Holy Spirit is convicting our hearts regarding our response to King Jesus. And in fact, if you are reading this passage and listening to this sermon and beginning to doubt the condition of your soil or the the reality of your fruit, I'd love to talk to you about that and seek to help you think through what the Bible says about that and pray with you. But I think the even bigger picture here is that Jesus is promising His disciples that the good news was going to spread and that it would continue spreading over time. And here we are 2,000 years later and that seed has spread. In fact, if you are listening to this as someone who has turned to Jesus in saving faith, you are part of this miraculous 30, 60, and 100 times fold bumper crop that Jesus was talking about. Because the kingdom was spreading then, it's been spreading ever since. And it's going to continue to spread until the very last moment before the last day. And that should bring great hope and confidence to all believers who are seeking to sow gospel seeds of their own through the Word of God. Because, friends, as we proclaim Christ, we know that we are privileged to be a part of the work of a spiritual harvest of miraculous proportions. Jesus actually had already said this 
recorded at the end of Matthew 9, that the harvest is abundant. It says he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. May God help us to pray in this way. May God help us to be faithful to sow gospel seeds every chance we get, knowing that some seeds will fall on good soil. Some sowing will not result in fruit, but some will result in a massive yield of an abundant harvest. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Please use us for your miraculous kingdom harvest. We know that the harvest is plentiful. There are many who could be compared to good soil in our city, in our county, in our state, in our nation, and around the whole world. There are many. And the workers, therefore, are needed. The laborers laborers in this very region, laborers in this very church. And so on the one hand, Lord, help us to hear the parable of the sower and be encouraged that as we simply sow the seeds, as you are sowing them through us, the harvest will come. And help us, therefore, to trust in you as we sow. But also, Lord, please... Use your Holy Spirit to convict where necessary regarding our responses to the message of God's Word, the message of the kingdom of God through Christ. Lord, if there are any here now who have never truly turned to Jesus, in whom there is no spiritual fruit, may today be the day that they call on you in faith and embrace you as King and follow you. Lord, do a mighty work in our church through your word, and I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's continue in prayer for just a couple of minutes.